Welcome to the Rethink ELA podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Boyd-Waters. Five years into my teaching career, and I realized very acutely that if I wanted to stay in the profession, I would need to do something very different. I couldn't continue being the sage on the stage, and when students didn't comply, hold them accountable in a punitive way. I had just left a school with zero tolerance behavior and assessment policies that they held teachers accountable for, but not students. And I had hated that system and wanted to move as far away from it as possible in my new school. I was the only English teacher for 9th through 11th grades and my hallway was empty for half the day since the other teachers were coaches or taught some of their classes in a different part of the school. It was just me and 25 teenagers. I realized that I would need to partner with them in their learning or I was going to have to find something else to do. That's when I discovered going gradeless. One of my Twitter colleagues, Aaron Blackwelder, guest wrote a blog post about what going gradeless taught him about doing the actual work in 2018. We also talked about going gradeless in a podcast episode the same year. But a lot has happened since then, including a pandemic that upended many of the traditional schooling structures we had been clinging to. So when I met Dina Lau at the National Council of English Teachers convention in November and started talking with her, I quickly realized she would be someone with whom I could talk about how going grayless impacted the shift to virtual teaching in the pandemic and what it means in our new roles now. That's a long conversation. So we decided in one of our pre or post interview conversations that we would host a Zoom workshop on the Saturday after this episode publishes and invite everyone to join us to talk about what going gradeless looks like in our classroom now and or how to make that shift. But first, Dina shares her journey and the specific changes she made in her classroom. And then I'll share more about the virtual workshop after these messages. Welcome to the Rethink ELA podcast, hosted by English language arts teacher, Michelle Waters. Prepare to receive strategies, products, and expert advice tailored to help teachers build social awareness, student agency and voice in their ELA classrooms. Are you looking for ways to help your students write vivid sensory descriptions? Searching for ways to convince them to use their writing tools after an extended break? The Rethink ELA Explode the Moment Narrative Writing Unit features mentor texts and exercises to help your students improve their skills within the context of their own stories or the ones they make up. Start with a favorite memory, like the best day ever, or write about a time when they felt important, or choose another positive memory or story that they love to tell. Then share the unit's mentor text for students to study the writer's craft. What worked well? What could the writer have done differently? What would you have written if you responded to that prompt? Even better, I've included a new version of my own essay that you can use to show students how I added, removed, and moved sentences and paragraphs from one version to the next. Once students have written and revised their personal narratives, they can share with their peers, enter contests, or get published. Order your unit now at rethinkela.com slash etmproject. Welcome back to the Rethink ELA podcast. I am here with Dina Lowe, and she has been a literacy coach for... A long time now, (laughs) and we're going to talk about going gradeless, which is something I've been writing about for a few years and trying to figure out how to implement in my own classroom, and she has some ideas that I am uh, excited to explore and to share with you. So, Dina, if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. So I am in year 19. Um, I started off uh, teaching in 2004 as a high school English teacher. 
Uh, so I started, you know, spent about four years in the classroom when I was offered a position as an instructional coach and um, worked as an instructional coach for um, about four years and then um, went back into the classroom. I was, I was still a fairly new teacher when I was offered the instructional coaching position and felt like I needed to grow more. Uh-huh. So went, made the decision to go back in the classroom and transition to middle school which was very different for me because <laughs> yes, I've been yes. dealing with high school kids for, um, for eight years. So um, when I made the decision to um, go to middle school, um, every really great teacher that I worked with at the high school level had taught middle school at some time. So yeah. I thought, you know, this would be great to transition back and um, decided that I wanted to take a job that was closer to my home. My son was about to start school and, wanted to be closer to home. So I went back to high school, um, and taught, um, at that high school for six years, switched schools again. Um, mm-hmm. and so I, I've done a little bit of everything with that, um, PLC coordinator, department coordinator, um, led a lot wow. of professional learning. And, uh, then I just, I, decided I wanted to work on becoming an administrator and um, recently finished up that program. But I am currently a literacy coach um, at a high school in Wilmington, Delaware. Excellent. So you've kind of filled lots of different roles and in every secondary level that you can. And so it sounds, you know, like you've got a lot of, you're very well-rounded and have a lot of experience and for a very long time. I only taught for in the classroom for 10 years. And so I, you know, you said you were a new teacher after four years, even after 10 years, you still feel kind of like a new teacher. It seems to me like teacher years kind of equal to human years. So when you're a first year (laughs) teacher, you're like an infant (laughs) and then, you know, 10 year teacher, you're about a 10 year old. And so you, you have made it to adulthood as a teacher. (laughs) I, I feel like that's probably a, a, one of the better ways I've heard that described. So I'm uh, looking at finding my way back into a school, but from kind of a different approach, which I'll talk about later. What I'm really excited to hear about from you, like I said earlier, is the concept of going gradeless. And I'd love to kind of hear how that journey started for you and why you started exploring that. Sure. So I, um, I had been teaching for, I think by that point, it had been about 11 years. So this would have been 2015. Uh I just, I I started feeling burned out and it was the kind of burnout where, um, I think it was really borderline demoralization. Yes. They are, they are two very, very different things. And like when, you know, when you're, when it's different. Um, and I just, I, I didn't like how things were set up and I was really concerned that if I did not do something differently, that I was going to leave the only profession that I really felt like was my life's purpose. Yes. And I so feel that because I was, it was about 2015, 2016 when I started having a lot of the same feelings and just, thinking, you know, I, I love interacting with the kids. I love seeing them learn and grow. I hate ranking and sorting them. Yeah, it was, um, well, so interestingly enough, I, like I, I know a lot of people who get into grade lists because they know that it really is a better system for students. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish I could say that that was why I started 
I, I started because I knew that if I didn't change the system, I would have had to have left the profession. And yeah. I didn't want yeah. to leave the profession. It's really the only thing that I know how to do. Yeah. And, so, and that's a valid reason too. I mean, whichever angle you come at it, the system is dehumanizing on both on both ends. And and we don't we don't understand that. You know, as teachers, yeah. we don't understand that the that the systems that we set up or perpetuate could be doing harm to both our students and ourselves. Like we don't, yeah. we don't look at it from that perspective. And um, so I had just, I don't know, I, I got to a point where I'm like, I've got to do something different. And yeah. I remember saying to one of my administrators, I'm going to do something different. I don't know what that is yet, but it's going to look different and it's going to be better for kids. And I, yeah. I just remember saying that. Um, but the, I mean, the idea of changing assessment and grading practice had been with me for quite some time. When I was an instructional coach, I was a, at a, um, a professional learning um, session with, there was a, a group of, of schools across the state of Delaware who were, were in this, um, I, for lack of another way to explain it, it's a program called Vision 2015. And we were... I was in a session with um, somebody who was an administrator at a former, at, well, he was at the school that I was currently at as an instructional coach, but he had moved on to a different building. And he was uh-huh. talking about changing the assessment practices within the building and and how they had moved to allowing students to retest, which was a very foreign concept to me. I didn't give a lot of tests as an English teacher, but just the idea of having kids redo things. I trusted his judgment and I knew there yeah. was some validity to that. I just couldn't for myself, like wrap my brain around it. And so I just, that was kind of with me. And then I was attending my, my district I was working at the time had um, a, like a tech conference, a district-wide tech conference that they offered um, one, one afternoon into evening. And Chris Avilas was there and he was talking about all of these things that he had done in his classroom. He had implemented gamification. He had Uh done all these different things. And I was like really intrigued by everything that he had to say. And at that point I'm like, so I can really just completely change this. Like I can totally change this whole system that I set up or I've been perpetuating. Like I can totally change this. And like, what's going to happen if I change it? You know, like that was like the big thought in my head is what, what if I change this? Like what's going to happen? And Uh it took me probably about a year after listening to Chris talk that I was then like, let me try, let me just try doing something because in my head, I had done what a lot of teachers do where it's like, if I do these things that like the, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. Like, I guess I thought the walls in the building were going to come crashing down or, you know, like frogs were going to drop from the sky or something. I don't know what I thought was going to happen, but you know, we, we always think that these really huge, terrible, awful things are going to happen if we change something. Like if we decide that we are going to allow retests, then, you know, the kids won't take the test seriously anymore. You know, that's one of the things that comes up or, you know, if, um, we start taking late work, then everyone's going to turn late work in all the time, you know? So, you know, we, we come up with these things that will happen. Um, we tell these narratives around this. So I, I just said, you know what, what, what will happen if I say that the lowest grade a kid earns is a 50%, 
Uh-huh. Like I, I started there and I was like, let's make 50 the, the lowest grade. So we sometimes will call that bottom F. And I, so that's what I did. I created 50% as a bottom F and nothing, nothing terrible happened. Like, I, yeah. you know, it just, it, it reduced my failure rate. It made the distribution of grade percentages more equitable, like, yep. nothing, but nothing bad happened. And the kids who struggled to turn in work on time were still struggling to turn in work on time. But the percentage of that for me went down. Like I wasn't dealing with these really terrible, horrible things anymore. And I was like, well, then what happens if I take late work? Yeah. Yep. So then it moved to, okay, I'm going to accept late work from students because I hadn't done that previously without there being some form of, of, you know, uh, penalty for that. And I hate to even say consequence because I feel like what that implies is that consequences are always logical and they're not, you know, it's like we, we sometimes create these illogical consequences for very human things. Yeah. So I just, you know, I, I was penalizing for late work and I didn't have any issues. Like if I was teaching 130 kids that year, there weren't 130 kids turning in work late. Like it didn't happen that way. So it's giving kids, it's building the opportunities into the system. So I'm also not dealing with the thing that I hate the most. Well, it's not the thing I hate the most in teaching, but (laughs) it was one of the things where you, you have that negotiation or that haggling that takes place at the end of a marking period when the kid comes to you in the 25th hour wanting to know what they can do about their grade. like And that's a perfect opportunity to find out what's going on with that kid, to talk about what they can do differently next semester, you know, have the conversation about how, you know, how can I be a better teacher for you? What do you need to be able to get your stuff in on time next semester? But what it allowed for is it wasn't happening six hours before grades were due. Yeah. Like that was, yep. that was the, the thing that I was dreaming. It's like you always inevitably, you would have the same kids. So sometimes you would have kids that wouldn't talk to you at all about it. And then mm-hmm. you'd have to initiate the conversation and you'd yep. have to send the emails or call home and, you know, make the calls where in a lot of cases, the parents weren't picking up the phone or returning your calls. So it was like, you know, there were a variety of things that were happening that were just, they were, they were completely sucking the life out of me as a teacher. Yeah. And so I just built those systems in uh-huh. and I was like, okay, you know, if, um, you know, if, if I just build this in, then we're not dealing with this right before like grades are due. Exactly. And so that's, that's kind of where I went next is yeah. I was like, well, let me, let me do this. And then as I was toying around with, well, what if I, if I push into gradeless more incidentally, how I came across the concept of being gradeless is when I started researching teacher burnout, because I was trying to figure out like, what, what do I do? Because like, I feel like my life as a teacher is, is slowly killing me. Um, Mm -hmm. what do I do? Gradeless came across my radar and something I searched and I was like, oh, well, this is interesting. And so I had then started connecting with other educators who were, you know, either in the process of moving to a gradeless classroom or, you know, changing their, their system. And so I had shifted to, um, you know, let me, let me look at what gradeless is. And so I had started connecting with all these other educators who were in that process themselves, which with gradeless, I don't think that 
I don't think you ever come up with this is the only way that I'm doing it. And this is the only way I'm going to do it moving forward. Right. Um, which is, was very consistent with my life as a teacher anyway. <laughs> so I, I was like, well, let me, let me try and see what happens. Um, so I had done a couple of things differently. The first thing I did was I changed some of my, my midterm and final exams um, so I was teaching a dual enrollment class, dual enrollment English, where students mm-hmm. were earning credit for um, a local college while taking English with me. So I was kind of functioning as an adjunct. And um, I changed their midterm exam to a portfolio assessment. Ooh, um, I so love that. We, um, so they went back and, and reviewed the, their writing pieces and determined a goal that they wanted to work on, um, based on the feedback that I provided them. And, and they revised, um, two of their pieces and conferenced with them, those pieces conferenced about those pieces with me. Um, when we met, they scheduled a time to meet with me. Um, and one of the things that I loved about that was one, I really started to understand how the students were improving their writing, but also they were starting to understand how they improved as writers. Yep. So it was yep. a very much like the learning became a conversation, which was really super cool. Cause I, I, I didn't really look at learning as a dialogue. I had been looking at it as like, I'm the teacher, you're the student, I'm going to teach you these things. You're going to learn them. But until that happened, I don't think I fully understood that I had gone for so many years, not really having a complete picture about what kids were actually learning. So that was huge. That was huge for me. So I enjoyed it. Like that was the other thing is it's like, I I feel like so much, so much of our time in education, like we don't get to focus on actually enjoying our jobs and being joyful. And it was like, I actually enjoyed those conversations with the students and enjoyed hearing about what they were learning. And I just, it, it, helped me to look at my students in a different way. And it helped, I think the students to look at me a little bit differently as well. And it's I, like, you have to partner with the students in order for them yeah. to learn. And then as you partner with them and they learn more, but you learn about them and they, they well, somebody in the last podcast episode, um, Andre said that the kids will teach you how to teach them. Yes. Yes. That's a, that, that's such a great way to put that. Um, we oftentimes we, we want to say we know what's best for kids and then don't give them a way to voice what is actually helpful. So yeah. we make a lot of assumptions <laughs> about our, about our learners. And one of the things that I, I always talk about is it's like, you know, when, when you're dealing with a challenging situation with, with your students, because, you know, we, we all know teaching is full of challenges. Like it's never not full of challenges. And yeah. You know, you know, the hope is that you're going to have maybe a few less challenges during the day. And then if you are in a school where your students have a lot of challenges that that are presented to them, and I feel like it almost doesn't even matter about location anymore. I feel like there are so many more challenges in with our adolescent population than there were 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, so it's like, you know, you you go through all of that and it's like, if a kid isn't turning in assignments that you have assigned or if they have put their head down in class, you know, mm-hmm. we develop these narratives around students, you know, and it's right. like, 
and, and it's because our brains are hardwired. You know, we we are hardwired to to tell stories, and so we tell a story about the behavior that we see, or you know, we tell a story about the experience that we're having. And really, when you boil it all down, if you love kids the way you say you love them, because a lot of us got into teaching because we love kids. So it's yeah. like if you love kids the way you say you love them, you don't tell their stories for them. Exactly. That was that was a hard reckoning for me because I I'm like, you know, I how often have I done that or continued to do it? And it's and it's not because I I am a bad person or because I'm a terrible teacher, but it's like we as human beings we have to fill in the narrative when the narrative's not there. And so talking to a student, having that dialogue actually gives them a chance to tell the story. And you yeah. learn so much about those students and their experiences and what's happening. And it makes the situation, um, you know, less, it makes it less unbearable for you as the teacher because you're, you're actually giving them one, a chance to have a voice, but two, a full opportunity to be able to tell their side and give their perspective to something that maybe you just didn't consider. Exactly. And by listening and hearing their story and conversing, having that dialogue with them, you can work together to find solutions for whatever problem they're facing. Yeah. It's a, it, it makes a big difference. It makes such a difference. Yeah. And so when, um, when I decided that I was going to then do this in another, you know, version, I did this, I was teaching 10th graders as well that year and decided that for their final exam, I was going to do like a portfolio assessment as well. And so we, I did something very similar. I just had adapted it to what worked best and um, ended up the following year after I had had a lot of success with this. And of course, I like I, to eliminate what I thought potentially might be an issue, I cleared it with my, my immediate administrator that I reported uh-huh. to. And had a conversation with her and just to explain, this is what I'm planning to do. And she was completely fine with it. You know, she, she excellent. and that's, a, and that's the thing. like, we think that the exam has to be like an exam they're taking, like they sit for like a test and it doesn't have to be. And so that was one of the things that I thought about is it's like, you know, I had stopped giving tests, like regular tests um, several years before that, because as an English teacher, if a lot of our emphasis is on writing process and development, you you can't give a test for that. And so I had stopped giving regular standard tests like years before that because they weren't good assessments for me. Exactly. So we had the depart as a department, we had changed some of our assessment practice to to meet that. So that became the final exam became a portfolio. And what ended up kind of happening from there is that I, I understood maybe a little bit better that the assessments that I were having the student, that I was having the students do, like, I don't actually know that they really learned anything from their work. Um, I just, like, I would, they would submit their essays. I would then grade them. I would return them. But I don't really think they learned from them. I think they were completing them to complete the task of doing the essay, yep. but they weren't learning anything from them. There was no exactly. feedback really. On it was just them. compliance. Yeah. It's, it, it was, it was hugely compliant. And it's like, then it's like, I, I think it started to make more sense to me that there, there was a classroom commodity that occurred with work completion and turning things in. So it's like, 
you know, there was not really the concern around what the students were learning. It was, you need to submit this in order to get something from me. Exactly. Or if you, if you don't submit this, so it's like, you know, the, and then the other part is if you don't turn it in, then you don't get this thing from me. And it's like, and another piece of that is, okay, so as a teacher, am I then placing more value on what a kid will do for me than I am the fact that the kid exists and they walk the earth and they should be a value inherently as a human. Exactly. Just for existing. Um, with the understanding that there is an accountability there. So, you know, we need to hold the kids accountable, but how much accountability really exists when (laughs) you're just only collecting the work. And if you don't do it, you get, you, you get your F and you're done. Like, yeah. And is it really about accountability or growth and process? Yeah. And that's, that's the other thing you have to determine is what are you actually measuring and what can be measured? And then the, the question became for me, it's like, I mean, do we master writing? Because that was, that's a a frequent thing that comes back is it's like, you have these standards that you have to master. And it's like, but do we master writing? Do we really master writing? Like, exactly. As a doctoral student, I have learned that I have not mastered writing. (laughs) I don't think to what degree we, we, any of us do. I mean, that's the reason why when when work gets published, there's more than one edition. Yep. You know, so that was, that was kind of what I had come to realize as well as it's like, I just don't think that like writing ever gets mastered. I mean, we have these standards that we're working toward, but it's like, I mean, I, and I've used my own work as examples for students of, you know, where revision and editing takes place. And some of your best work comes in the revision process. It doesn't come in drafting, you know, it comes in the revising of those pieces. Exactly. Exactly. So that was kind of it. That was kind of the start of that shift for me. Where it ended up moving from there is that I had by that point I was about to switch schools, and I went from teaching. I, I think that year I'm trying to remember if that was the year that I had three preps. I think it was the year I had three preps. I was teaching tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade that year. Um, yep. So <laughs> I had you know it's it ran the gamut and. I had in that year, I had tried all of these very different and new techniques. So it's like I had been teaching close reading strategies for several years and teaching how to how to much more effectively and concisely annotate text. And then I had shifted to using Marissa Thompson's TQE as yes, kind of a, love you know, that process progression. And and I was like, oh, so I don't even have to like collect like dialectical journals. Like Uh I can just actually listen to kids talk about the text and assess them that way. So it was like a lot of my assessment practices started to change. Um, I had used these different strategies. And so at that point, when I switched schools, I went from teaching 10th, 11th and 12th grade to teaching eighth grade reading. So as an eighth grade reading teacher, um, you know, yes, we have to prepare them to, to take state assessments, yada, yada, yada. But I was like, what am I really trying to do here? Because my purpose as a teacher is to improve learning outcomes for student, uh, for adolescent and adult learners. So it was like, Uh so what am I really teaching them how to do here? So I had a couple of sessions with um, Dave Schmidow and Dave had broken down the prioritizing of standards pretty concisely. I had been prioritizing standards and curriculum mapping with um, work that I had done for 10 years, but I was still at about 15 standards. And then 
through working with Dave, Dave kind of helped me understand with a little bit more perspective about like, what does it mean to really prioritize standards? And so at that point I had gotten down to like five, these are the hard standards that I'm assessing and we're just doing them recursively. So that enabled me to go, okay, what are we really focused on learning? So I had started making these big adjustments and at right around the same time as when I had started to connect with, um, with Nick Covington and Chris McNutt from human restoration project. And Nick has this great evidence journal that he had started using as a teacher and put together. And what that allowed for is the list of standards that I had prioritized and then actual work connected with those standards. But I found that we were on a four marking period year. And I found that during, I'd say toward the end of the first marking period. So I was like, I'm going to implement this within the next like two months Um, So I had then moved to like starting this process and I was just in the process of starting this with the students when March of 2020 hit. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) what I ended up finding out is that like there was all of this shuffling and shifting that had to occur with a lot of, a lot of teachers that in one week. <laughs> yes. It was, it was quite literally, it was one week. And it was like yeah. all of these philosophical understandings around grading and assessment. And what I came to realize is that I didn't have to change anything. Exactly. Which was enormously helpful. It was a yes. lot less stressful and a lot less jarring considering all of the, the, the ways that we had to adjust everything we understood about teaching, education, and learning. Yeah. Um, so it ended up becoming a process for me that was incredibly helpful because I had changed. I, I I was having the students do a, you know, a research project and looped in all these reading standards with that. So it was like, I just was still able to do the same project. It's just that like the, I was guiding the kids from home versus having them be in a classroom with me. Um, so I really, at that point I was like, well, the bottom line is, are they learning something and can they demonstrate they've learned? Like that was exactly finally what I had gotten to. And a lot of the students were like, you know, it just, they, they were kept telling me that they felt so much less stressed out because they didn't feel pressured to meet these, these deadlines that might not have been realistic to begin with. Um, exactly. And then for the kids where it was like, you know, we would take, you know, a week or a week and a half to work on a project during class time, I would have a kid that would come to me with, you know, and these were, these were eighth graders, mind you. So we Uh still, you know, as eighth graders, you still have these very actively involved parents in a lot of cases. So I would, I had a kid come in with this, with this note written from his mom saying that he couldn't, he, he was not able to have his project completed because they were um, off doing something that evening. And I looked at him and I said, so what do we do about the week and a half of class time that you also had to work on this project? And he kind of looked at me and I said, so when are you handing it in? And he was like, I'll have it in tomorrow. I was like, okay, that's great. So it's like, so there's actual accountability there. Yeah. Whereas before it would have been, oh, he's just not going to turn it in. But it's like, there was actual, oh, like, you know, I'm recognizing in this moment that I didn't do the thing that I should have done. Um, and so that, you know, it's like, 
some people call what some people call accountability is really actually just penalizing a kid for not meeting a deadline. Exactly. Um, and then the kid's like, okay, whatever, I'm done. And yeah. then when you make that shift, you're negotiating and the kids, you know, they see that you're giving them grace and they'll rise to the occasion. It's um, and, and the other piece of that too is you don't have the same conversations with parents anymore either. And that was exactly kind of a, a side effect of that, that I, I had, I had not anticipated and realized was something that would occur is it's like, by the time that I have, I have had a conversation with the parent at the end of a marking period, it's likely that I've had that conversation several times. Um, yep. It's not the only time the parent and I have talked. And by that point, the parent has, you know, the parent understands that I've really quite done everything I can. And, at, you know, your, your student, your child, um, you know, your grandchild, your you know niece, nephew, whomever it is that the child resides with, um, you know, that I have offered up all of the opportunity in the world for, for your student to kind of get where they need to be. And if they're not there, it's not something that we need to discuss what my role was in that. Like right. you, you're very clear about that. So yeah, the conversation quickly would turn from why, you know, why are you flunking my kid to wait a second? My kid has had all these opportunities and still has an opportunity. You know, why, why are you not getting this done? <laughs> it's, it, it totally changes the the yeah. dialogue and it becomes something that is much, it, it, it becomes about whether or not the learning has taken place. Yeah. Um, because if you don't have evidence of learning having occurred, that's a very different conversation. Right. And so that becomes what the conversation is about is it's like, you know, here is how I'm assessing your, your child and I don't have evidence of learning having occurred. So in order for me to appropriately assess your child, I have to have evidence of learning. Um, yeah. So it changed that that dialogue that I was having with parents. And especially in the realms of being in a pandemic, um, you know, the pandemic was, you know, and I hate, I hate to use this word because it got used so much, but it's, it really was truly unprecedented. So, yeah, you know, it's like, it, it was so a hundred year pandemic. Yes. So it's like, so we, you know, I, I go in and have the discussion and it's like, you know, I just don't have evidence of your child having learned and that's what I'm truly looking for. And so that's how the conversation changed. So what ended up happening is that when I started the next school year, I started right off with, um, you know, doing, we, as a, as a teacher in the state of Delaware, we have pre and post assessments we have to administer. I'm sure a lot of teachers have something very similar, um, that will impact um, our evaluation and how we're rated as teachers within, you know, our, our community where we work. So we would have pre and post assessments, but I wouldn't really do anything with those. So I kind of changed it. You know, it was really pretty much just offering something out of compliance. Like I have to give you these assessments and then you're going to take another one at the end of the year and you don't really see it. So I ended up doing something a little bit smaller with that And that became the foundation of goal setting, which is the foundation of the evidence journal that Nick Covington had introduced. Um, So that was kind of the next step. That was our, the major next step is that that's kind of where it, where it went after that. So what I'm hearing is that, you know, you started out with, you know, 
changing your late work policy, and then you started changing the way assessment looks by introducing portfolios. You started viewing learning as a dialogue and, you know, kept moving along that process from there. What I'm thinking is that there are, I am sure, new teachers, maybe even veteran teachers or, you know, teachers who haven't gone through traditional training who have, are at the same place that we were realizing that what they are doing, the traditional grading isn't working. What would you say, how, how, do, they, how do they need to get started? So I would, I would say if the teachers are like me, you want to dive in and do all the things. And that becomes very overwhelming very quickly and also right. a, a big challenge. So start with something small. Um, you know, I, I tell people start with like saying that no student will earn less than a 50%. Start there. Uh-huh. You know, and I know that there are always questions about like, you know, well, in, in my district or in my building, I, I don't know if I will be allowed. So it, here's the thing. I've never met an administrator when you come to them and say, I want to do this thing that's going to weigh on the side of the student, I've never met an administrator that said, no, you can't do that. Or, you know, it's like, I want to, the other key thing is using the word pilot. So I want to pilot this thing with the understanding that you also need to be prepared to report how that's working. Uh Um, But I've never met an administrator that ever said to me, you know, no, you can't do that thing that's going to be helpful to to kids. Um, So, you could start at, you know, no grade less than a 50% or let me try taking late work with some parameters. Um, you know, it's like if you've never done um, redos on assessments, that's another place to start. But start with something small and manageable and then take a next step after that. Yeah. Start with that one step. Make changes and see how things work. Talk with your students. Um, and and I, I'm what I experienced is that as you do that, as you start with that one step and the students start saying, wow, my teacher's working with me. They rise to the occasion. They are willing to you know, take some more risks. They, they, if nothing else, like you better. And when that happens, they tend to work better for you. Um, so it improves your relationship with the kids. And then, you know, the, the numbers approve, you not, not approve, but improve. And, and so it just ends up being better all the way around. So we are, we are out of time. I think this has been a great conversation. It's kind of got, I've taken some notes over here on some things that we, I'd love to talk with you uh, about in the future. And, but yeah, it, it really just comes down to learning being a dialogue, like you said, and really being able to serve the students and serve their needs and their learning. I completely agree. And I think when learning becomes a a dialogue, um, you also start to see that your classroom culture changes because it becomes power. It becomes a power with environment, which has, has not, has not failed me. That's when I, when I made it more a power with it, it created a culture that was, was much more pleasant for both myself and my students. Yes. I like that power with. The, the phrase that I ended up using in my class is partnering with my students. You know, for me, um, I was teaching um, ninth, 10th, and 11th grade in a very small school. I was at the end of the hallway. All the other teachers in the hall were coaches. And so the second half of the day, they were all gone. It was me and, you know, 20 some odd teenagers. And I realized I can't do this by myself if I'm against them. We have to work together. 
And so, right. So we, like I said, we're about out of time. So um, I, I would just like to say thank you so much for sharing this with us. And um, if anybody has any questions about how this looks or uh, how to get started, then you know, just leave some, leave your comments, leave your questions in the uh, comment section, or the it's called the collaboration section, actually, on the blog. And we will be happy to get back to you. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed talking to you. Have you considered going gradeless but aren't sure how to get started? Or you've been exploring gradeless assessment policies but just need help implementing them in your classroom context? Or perhaps you've been doing this for a while but just need ideas on how to improve your existing processes? Dina Lau and I have more than a decade of combined gradeless experience at the middle and high school levels. Dina shared how she started her gradeless journey in this Rethink ELA podcast episode, and we'll be sharing more of our strategies and insights in an interactive, virtual Teach Empowered Writers workshop at 2 p.m. January 21st. Bring your ideas, bring your questions, be ready to learn. But first, sign up for the workshop notifications at rethinkela.com workshop. Thank you for listening to Rethink ELA podcast. I'm Michelle Waters, and I can't wait to give you a few resources I've developed to help you create a student-centered, collaborative, and creative learning environment. Download these resources when you join our mailing list at rethinkela.com news.